Okay. Are you recording? Alright. Okay. Alright. <coughs> You're listening to the imposter. Haha. You thought this was Radio Lab, but you were wrong, you silly folk. Anyway, welcome to this week's episode of The Imposter. We have a very special guest, Mr. Roe Allen, who has been on this show many a times. He's a good friend, an excellent scientist, and he's going to be telling us all about the recent scientific expedition that he was on, just like Mr. Otis Bruner, another previous guest. So, without further ado, alright, so we are rolling, and we will start in three, two, one. We live in an age based on science and technology with formidable technological powers. And if we don't understand it, by we I mean the general public, if it's something that, oh, I'm not good at that, I don't know anything about it, then who is making all the decisions about science and technology that uh, are going to determine what kind of future our children live in? We've really got to start at the earliest levels with having a broader view of what education really can and should be. Because I find that with the young people we have, we are able to motivate them. Science is all around us. It's in us. The knowledge of science is power. It gives you an understanding of the forces of nature. It's not even about how much science you know. It's about how science Hey everybody, welcome back to this week's episode of The Imposter, the podcast dedicated to making science more fun and engaging for you, the audience. Alright, so today we are joined by longtime guest of the podcast and longtime friend of host of podcasts, this guy right here that you can't see, but your humble host, Amir. Uh, so, we welcome Ro Allen, Emrez, and PhD student to The Imposter. Actually, we welcome back Ro Allen. So, Ro, nice, nice to have you Thank back. Thank you. Always a pleasure. <laughs> How, are you doing? How are you doing today, buddy? Yeah, very well. It's, uh, um, as some of you might know, Amir's over in the States and I'm in New Zealand, so we're on slightly different time frames. Um, it's very early for the man himself, whereas it's bedtime for me. <laughs> Only, uh, what is it, 14 hours? It's not too bad. <laughs> minor difference, minor difference. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we can coordinate, it's not bad. Um, all right, great. So, Ro, we haven't actually had you on the podcast in, in a while because of this time difference, uh, but we would love to hear how everything is going with your PhD over in Dunedin, New Zealand. Yeah, so um, as Amir said, I'm over in Dunedin in New Zealand, studying at the University of Otago, finishing or starting my PhD over here. Um, Otago, you! Otago, you! Um, <laughs> yeah, so I've been in, I've been going now since February, so I'm approaching six months. Uh, it will be six months at the end of, or at the very end of July. Um, wow. And so far, so good. I think the <laughs> PhDs are quite difficult as <laughs> as one might imagine and and so there's lots of teething challenges and hurdles to overcome at the beginning but sure. i'm getting to the stage now where my project's really starting to take shape i've started to understand um 
the field that I'm working in now a lot better than I than I did previously. Um, so yeah, it's it's all very exciting. That's very exciting. When you say that your project is starting to take shape, are you trying to tell us that the project you applied for is not exactly what you're doing right now? <laughs> um, essentially, yes. Uh, you're gonna blow my mind. That's that's my very polite way of saying that. Um, yeah, so quite often with PhDs, uh, a supervisor will advertise a project or they'll receive funding to complete a piece of research. But once you once you arrive and you start working on that particular research question, uh, different challenges rear their ugly heads and there's certain practical limitations and stuff like that. Um, or in my case, um, we found out another research group who we actually collaborate with had got some very similar work planned to what I was planning to do, um, oh, which which would have led to you know the redundancy of one of our projects. And because we were collaborating anyway, there was there was no purpose for the research group to do the same thing twice. So um, I decided to switch my project to a slightly different angle, um, trying to answer a similar question. So, um, so I, and, and what is that? What is that new angle? Where has it shifted to? So my, my initial starting point was to look at how marine phytoplankton communities, so the small microbes that live in the sea and um, you know uh, take in a lot of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and produce a lot of oxygen for us to breathe. Um, so I was looking at how those phytoplankton communities uh, in the ocean, as opposed to in the laboratory, were going to respond to climate change. Um, so that we could draw some pretty realistic projections of of what the future oceans are likely to look like. Um, oh, slightly important. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, so the novel aspect of that research was um, was looking at both ocean acidification and warming at the same time, but in in a natural community out in the sea rather than in the laboratory. But again, that that was something that um, our well another side of our research group had already decided to tackle. So. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm working on now is much more about the adaptive capacities of these species of plankton and um, their kind of evolutionary potential to deal with the changes that are going to be approaching over the next hundred years. Interesting. How are you measuring their potential? Uh, lots of different ways. <laughs> Experimental <laughs> evolution is is a huge field of biology. Um, so the kind of classical way of doing that is to grow them in a laboratory. So grow the phytoplankton species that you're interested in and create artificially the conditions that we're expecting to see in the sea in about 100 years' time and uh, allow them to grow under those conditions for hundreds of generations. We usually aim for between 500 and 1,000 generations. Right. And these plankton, many of, many of the species, a generation time is approximately a day. So if you're doing a 500-generation experiment, that would, that would take you over a year. 1,000-generation experiment would, would be a little over three years. So, Jeez. you know, they're quite big projects to take on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from that, you would see over all of those generation times, how, um, how have they been able to adapt? How have the phenotypes changed? And how resilient are they now to the conditions that they're facing? Interesting. Um, yeah. It, it- it's similar to flies being used in laboratory studies because it's the same thing. Such a short lifespan, you can go through a lot of generations fairly quickly and learn how they would react and evolve to different stressors and whatnot. 
Absolutely. So, so that's one of the huge advantages we have working with marine phytoplankton species is you know many of them reproduce incredibly fast. Many of them reproduce as quickly as you know a generation every twelve hours. Some of them a generation every day. Some of them ever so slightly longer than that. Mm-hmm. But it it affords us the ability to actually look at evolutionary adaptation. Um, whereas if you were looking at something like a, a larger animal, which had perhaps a one year generation time right. or even a multiple year generation time it's not feasible to monitor them over enough generations in a laboratory to see any adaptive change yeah 100 i think the closest thing we have to that is dogs and domesticated dogs well a lot of the domesticated animals in general i guess yeah all right cool so it's shifted a bit but it sounds like you're now on the track to where the project's actually going to start coming together is that about right? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, do you want me to explain, uh, like, what the what the field of literature is in a bit more depth? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why not? Let's yeah. let's learn a so, bit today. Um, so, so basically, there's like billions and billions and billions, billions. Of, of, <laughs> of phytoplankton cells living in the ocean, and that's fairly obvious when you consider the total volume of the Earth's oceans and the fact that there can be cell concentrations of well over a thousand cells per milliliter, even with even with some of the larger phytoplankton species. Mm. So, you know, they're they're super abundant and they're everywhere. Now, that means a couple of things, but one of the things that it means is because they're sexually reproducing populations, though we don't understand their reproduction well, we know that there is sexual reproduction. Um, because of sexual reproduction in such a massive pool of, uh, pool of individuals, it means that there's lots of genetic diversity. So, Interesting. So, yeah. So in groups like, uh, take diatoms, they're a huge taxonomic group of very important marine phytoplankton. So in diatoms, there's just an incredibly broad range of genetic diversity, which means there's a huge range of uh, what we call genotypes, which will correspond to a huge range of phenotypes. Now, a genotype is a way of saying an organism with one particular set of genes, essentially, and a phenotype is an organism with one particular trait that it is ex- expressed. Mm-hmm. So a phenotype can be, in this case, resilience to climate change. Now, because of such a great diversity of genotypes in the natural populations, there is almost certainly, um, by way of that, a huge number of phenotypes which are resilient to climate change already existing in the oceans. So what a huge part of my project is, is trying to quantify some of that genetic diversity in diatoms and say, you know, how much much diversity is really out there. Mm -hmm. And then to try and isolate as many genotypes as I possibly can in the laboratory by cloning cells and then testing how those individual colonies that we call monoclonal colonies, so cells based on one clone, how those different monoclonal colonies respond to climate change and if we can find any pre-existing genotypes that are already very resilient to climate change. Do you, when looking at the phenotypes, are there many different, I guess this is your project, isn't it? Are there a lot of different reactions or ways to deal with, I should say, ocean acidification or or warming temperature? You know, so for, 
um, a coccolithophore, you know, their, their shell might be slightly more resilient to ocean acidification than another type of coccolithophore. Yeah. But then instead of a shell for one, it's uh, just thermoregulating better instead of a stronger shell. Uh, yeah, fantastic question, actually. Like, um, that you couldn't, you couldn't have asked a better question. Even though question. it's very convoluted, but yeah. No, I, I understand what you're asking. You're saying, um, you know, what traits do you look at? And just because something... Uh, a trait is expressed which is strong in one respect does that mean it's strong in another respect so right so uh, to put words in your mouth a little bit maybe saying just because <laughs> just because <laughs> something's resilient to ocean acidification does that mean that it's also going to be resilient to warming for example right is that correct uh it that is correct but it's also i guess it's just the different types of ways that organisms deal with the same stressor okay Cool. So basically, we don't really look at the physiology of how they're dealing with it. What we look at is is responses on the organism level. So our primary trait, which we measure um, as our main sort of go-to, is growth rate. And growth rate in phytoplankton is population growth rate. So basically how quickly these cells are replicating. Now, that's a really useful proxy in climate change studies because that is directly related to how common that particular genotype or phenotype will be in natural populations. So if something's growing really fast and doing well under um, high CO2 or warmer conditions, then it's likely that that, that particular phenotype is going to proliferate in a future ocean. Right. And by way of proxy, we're assuming that it is dealing with the acidification and the warming very well because it's got enough energy to dedicate to fast growth rate whereas an organism that was struggling um, to deal with the increased acidity or the increased temperature would have to be spending more energy dealing with those aspects of things rather than being able to dedicate that energy to growth and reproduction so we look at other variables as well you know, we can look at photosynthetic parameters and how efficiently these cells are taking carbon dioxide out of the water column. And, and there's lots of parameters we can look at. We can even look at how, how toxins are being produced by different algae and if, if the toxicity per cell tends to change. Um, so there's, there's tons of stuff we can look at, but in reality, the, the measure that really, really matters is growth rate. So here on The Imposter, we are friends to expeditions of sorts sure we recently followed a past guest and mutual friend of ours from plymouth otis bruner which was very exciting we had a lot of updates from them but you too were on an expedition not too long ago do you want to give us a little overview about that on how your time was aboard the tangaroa Tangaroa. Yeah, it's, uh, that is a awesome. Yeah, name. it's a really cool name. I think it's. I think it's got some history behind it. It's. Um, uh, let me. I need to actually pull this up because it's worth it. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> Tangaroa is a Maori god um, in mythology. That's awesome. Uh, and is the god of the sea. Uh, what? Yeah. So they've they've named their expedition ship after the god of the sea, which is really really cool. I think. Um, that's very cool certainly a lot better than Bo- Boaty McBoatface Boaty McBoatface although I do love Boaty McBoatface I kind of wish it is pretty good. I kind of wish I that actually happened. yeah I, I, I do wish that a scientific vessel so for those of you at home that have no idea what we're talking about and just sounds like we're saying random words uh, there was an open vote that which 
institution was actually holding it? Uh, NERC. It was NERC? Yeah. Um, so they had a new expedition vessel, and they wanted the public, they wanted to crowd name the boat. So the most popular boat name was Boaty McBoatface, and it was, it was almost there. It was almost there. And they made an executive decision and called it Sir David Attenborough, right? Yeah, the which David. is which is a worthy second. I think that's it. Yeah, yeah. Everyone, so. everyone loves David. I know that that's actually a really good compromise. It's not like you'd be like, no, take it away from him. I hate that guy. It's <laughs> yeah. like it's probably like the everybody's most grandfather, be- beloved biologist in the British. Yeah, right? exactly, exactly. Well, probably in the world, or at least yeah. one of them. Absolutely. All right, so tell us about uh, this expedition you were on. So basically, oh yeah, I went out, or this ship rather, called the RV Tangara. I always get in trouble for referring to it as a boat rather than a ship. I need to, uh, need, <laughs> need to stop that. <laughs> it's like calling um, for divers, like fins flippers. Yeah, exactly. If you, well, if you ever want to know how to um, upset the crew on a ship, refer to it as a boat. <laughs> a dinghy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, so the boat was rocking a lot today. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, no, anyway, so so I went out on this uh, on this ship, the RV Tangara, and the idea of the expedition was to pull together seventeen multidisciplinary scientists from you know uh, from physics professors to chemistry professors to um, botanists like myself, and um, and then zoologists, and we went out to uh, an area called the Cross Shelf Break, which is just east of. Um, just east of the Huraki Gulf, if anyone's familiar with New Zealand. And the idea of going to this shelf break was that a previous expedition had found that it was a really highly productive area. And so what was happening in this area where the continental shelf dropped off was there was tons and tons and tons of plankton growing and it was taking loads and loads of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, which is fantastic. And And then it was sinking really quickly to the bottom of the sea where all of this carbon would settle on the seabed and basically be locked up in sediments for hundreds of years so what it was doing was taking carbon out of the atmosphere but removing it entirely from the carbon cycle at least in the short term um, ultimately reducing the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere which is a really beneficial thing uh, in the current state of affairs so (laughs) what we wanted to do was go out there and find out why this region is so productive and then do some really really sort of hardcore characterization of exactly how the primary productivity is working and really get a handle on the physical and chemical parameters in that region to try and find out why it was happening. That sounds that sounds amazing. So did you find out why it's happening, why that area is more productive? Yeah, so we don't have the results yet, actually, because we recently just got back from the cruise and there's still a lot of data to be processed. But the the theories that came out were that because of the physical structure of the continental shelf break, what it, what it causes is deep water which is rich in nutrients which plankton need to grow they come up against the shelf wall and they get pushed up because they can no longer travel along the bottom and so that means that um, high nutrient deep water is being brought into the photic zone where there's light Mm -hmm. and plankton so these planktons have the light to grow and now they're being given lots and lots of nutrients to grow and so in theory that should massively increase their growth rates and so that's that's kind of the main theory is that that it's being driven by this upwelling that's that's the kind of catchphrase people use so you'll hear quite often that upwelling zones are highly productive and it's that's the 
primary mechanism for it. But in this region, there's also quite high concentrations of iron, which is another really important thing that causes phytoplankton to grow. Um, so really, we had this situation where we had physical upwelling, we had nutrients going in, and we had iron going in. So what we what we wanted to do is to try and tease apart which of those variables were really affecting it or affecting the primary productivity. We did some experiments on the deck of the ship where we created some artificial seawater where we added nutrients in the concentrations that we expect them in the deep water. Mm. We did the same where we um, added just iron in the same concentrations we're expecting in the deep water. And then we had some samples where we just actually added the deep water. And that's a slight oversimplification of the experimental design. Right, right, right. But it's a good explanation. explanation. Yeah, but that's essentially what we were looking at, is we were trying to see whether these productivity shifts were caused by the iron or whether they were caused by the nutrients Mm -hmm. or whether they were caused by something else in that deep water that might be important but we'd perhaps overlooked up until that point. And, yeah, in in terms of preliminary results, it really looks like it's both the iron and the nutrients that are the most important things. But really, there's a lot of data left to be processed. So. Yeah, I mean, that's 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 very exciting. Uh, it's funny. I remember in my oceanography class, I think it was, the first time I heard about iron being an aid in uh, productivity for phytoplankton, he was saying that when, the, when researchers first discovered it, they were literally just going out in the middle of the ocean or in the Gulf of Mexico and just dumping loads of iron just to see if it would increase productivity. And they would have phytoplankton blooms. I mean, it did, but I think now now, now they, they maybe fine-tuned those experiments a bit more than just kind of dumping a shit ton. Yeah, there, there have been some really amazing experiments with iron blooms. One of, the, one of the great ones was a big, big international research team went down into the Southern Ocean around Antarctica they found an eddy, which is like an area of water, which was well, essentially the creation of a, a static uh, vertical column of water. So they could study it almost like it was in a laboratory. And they dumped a load of iron in there and watched this phytoplankton bloom around Antarctica happen. And they just monitored it and looked at all the different species that did well in the bloom. And then they even modeled um, the sinking rates of those uh, of those phytoplankton communities what? and, and from so that cool. determined you know how much carbon dioxide was being taken out of the atmosphere by these iron things yeah. or by these iron fertilized blooms rather so um, yeah that, that was a really cool piece of research I think it was back in 2008 actually huh. but it was it was groundbreaking at the time that's pretty cool oh well it's also good to know that if uh, we need to increase marine snow somehow we could always just boost productivity and then you know sprinkle it wherever in theory in theory <laughs> in theory, in theory. <laughs> there, there are likely to be other ecological consequences no, no. of that no 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 <laughs> this is concrete bro all right <laughs> we've right, solved so... climate change <laughs> so how long were you actually out there on the expedition itself so i was out on the expedition for three weeks wow and did you miss dry land and any point during that time enormously uh yes um <laughs> so three weeks isn't actually that long for a marine biology research expedition on a ship but you know expeditions can quite often be in the region of months to so say three weeks yeah. isn't really anything to complain about per se but it was it was my first time at sea overnight even I'd, well i think i'd, I'd spend really? one night on a boat before yeah so I felt like I was jumping in at the deep end a little bit. But it was, yeah, it was, it was really good fun. I think the things that are challenging when you're out on a ship for a long time are the fact that there's nowhere to go. So you just find your existence is limited to yeah. 
you know your your cabin which is in my case was shared with a really cool guy actually um a guy called carl johnson um who i'll take a little tangent to explain who he is now actually he's um, <laughs> so in new zealand they've got this really great program where they want science teachers in schools to be more connected with you know prominent researchers in their field and all of that kind of stuff so that that's awesome it's, that is it's great isn't very it very cool so yeah. then they can take what they've learned about what's happening in new zealand science from an academic perspective and use that to what? inspire their students so um oh, man yeah so carl's a physics teacher in a school in christchurch and he's just a super enthusiastic like really really intelligent great guy and um and so he was out with Niwa on this expedition huh. working he was actually with us processing our data and, and doing the exact same work that we were doing and then he was going to take that back to his students and and kind of get them excited about marine biology and get them to engage with issues such as climate change. So yeah, that's so cool. That's that's that pretty makes cool. Makes me really it? happy. Yeah, it just makes it, the the British government really needs to do something like that because um, it's such a great such a great yeah. idea. Anyway, so yeah, your existence is kind of limited to your cabin, the galley where you eat, and your laboratory. <laughs> and my laboratory was in the middle of a boat, so. Or a ship, <laughs> ship rather. Excuse me. You better watch it. Tell me. <laughs> so, so my laboratory was in the middle of the ship, uh, which meant there were no windows in it. So I was quite oh, often man, yeah. kind of disorientated in terms of what time of day it was, by by obviously like the clocks. But you, you know, it was it was an interesting experience. Sometimes you're really grateful when you're in the lab that you couldn't tell what time of day it was because you just needed to keep your head down and and you know fire through the work and if you couldn't yeah. see the sun changing you didn't feel tired so that was really great yeah it's, it's just interesting i think one of the one of the things you don't think about is when you're at home you can just go for a walk or you can just go for a run or you know go see a couple of your other friends that you haven't seen in a while or you know um god forbid go to the pub and have a pint of beer with some pals or whatever Whoa, but you need to slow down buddy. <laughs> you are wild <laughs> but like but all of that stuff you you can't do when you're on a ship and i'm really big into just being active and playing sport and doing exercise and that kind of stuff and there was a really cool small gym on the ship but you can yeah, get that's cool yeah yeah it was it was it was actually quite good but you could get nowhere near as good a workout as you could obviously going to right. going to a gym at home and you know, the boat's rolling and you're trying to run on a treadmill and you're, <laughs> you're just waiting to fall off. <laughs> that's uh, amazing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's, so that's the thing is um, for all the negative aspects of, you know, being quite in quite a sort of claustrophobic environment, there were so many fantastic aspects of the cruise. Mm. So, um, so a couple of the things that I really enjoyed was, uh, first of all, like the camaraderie between the scientists and the crew and everyone on the ship. You're, you really are all in a situation together and you just work together so well and you get to know everyone really personally and, and kind of understand how they work and how they tick. Right. And Yeah, there were, there were loads of really wonderful aspects of the cruise, like um, the galley where they serve food was just incredible. Really? So it's like, oh, mate. So I was so worried about, what the food would be like on a on a ship because i just assumed it would be quite like school dinners but it was like <laughs> eating every meal in a restaurant it was what? unbelievable that's yeah so yeah the cool. the, the, Dude, the chefs they, i know the chefs they had on board were just absolutely incredible oh, wow. yeah we were just like wonderfully looked after and we had an unlimited supply of coffee which was probably the most important thing um see i was gonna ask for folks at home that don't know i found this out when i lived with Roe. you love milk were you able to get your milk fix? 
<laughs> I do love milk. I've got a horrible guilty habit of just drinking pints of milk. I don't know how you do that. I, honestly, I don't know how you just... I love it. <laughs> I just love milk. I just love milk. Um, yeah, I, I was. They had lots and lots of milk on the boat. But also I felt um, I didn't really drink my pints of milk on the boat because I thought I'd probably get judged. <laughs> and, it, <laughs> and it was my first time working with a lot of these people. So I thought I better, I better reel that habit in. So I, I, I just it. drank coffee instead. I thought that seemed much more reasonable to people. Fair enough. Uh, that, is, <laughs> that is hilarious though. <laughs> so getting back to the work that you were doing, you, I believe, were telling me that the last little bit of the expedition, you were just doing 12-hour shifts, but even more than that, it was just very stressful kind of processing everything. There was a lot to take in. Yeah, so um, one of the aspects that we wanted to look at in the cruise was we wanted to look at these daily cycles of the processes in the water column. And what that meant was that we had to that we had to sample constantly throughout the day. So what we were doing was taking CTD samples. What does CTD stand for? So CTD stands for conductivity, temperature, depth, and it's uh, an instrument that measures uh, the salinity of the seawater. So that's the conductivity aspect of things, the temperature, and then obviously the depth, which is a pressure sensor. So you would you would have that off the side of the ship and. You would take measurements every couple hours, every few hours, is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. So essentially we'd, we'd collect a load of seawater. So what we would take is maybe about 10 litres of seawater from each CTD cast. And um, me and my, my colleague or my, my boss, kind of, <laughs> um, Andreas, uh, would be taking 10 litres of seawater into the lab and we'd process that for all sorts of stuff. So we would extract DNA from it. We would also extract filters for something we call HPLC, which is high-pressure liquid chromatography. So we're looking at what pigments exist in the water column. It's a really cool method, actually. Really cool. Yeah, and we can learn a lot from, from HPLC readings. And then we're also using a thing called an FRRF, which stands for Fast Repetition Rate Fluorometry, and or fluorometer, rather. And basically, that's a method of measuring the photosynthetic efficiency of organisms. So, uh, that's yeah, pretty cool. Just, yeah, yeah, it's really crazy. Even even gives you like an estimate of electron transport rates. So if you're familiar with photosynthesis, that'll make sense to you, but it's definitely not something to go into now because it'll... You don't want to. Uh, you want to go into the science behind photosynthesis? Not desperately. Speaking of, <laughs> I'm just gonna. Why, say, is, why is that funny, Mister Fogel? <laughs> photosynthesis is a serious was, topic. Photosynthesis is hilarious. <laughs> no, I I just found out about this the other day. I think it was, and I fucking love science article. Mm -hmm. But it's this nudibranch which is uh, sea slug, and it, it has the ability to photosynthesize as well as have its... Wait, wait, here it is. Okay. Elysia chloritica. I need to look this bad boy up. It's pretty cool. I'll just read a little blurb from the IFL science. It's been called the photosynthesizing sea slug in the past, but how it manages to do this as well as it does is a complete mystery. In a new study appearing in the Biological Bulletin, researchers reveal that the sea slug has incorporated genes from the algae that it eats. Incredible. That is pretty cool. Um, so for those of you at home, we'll, we'll post a link to that because it's, it's a pretty cool thing to check out. The mixing between primary producer and primary consumer. All right, so all in all, it sounds like it was a, it was a pretty busy expedition, but... Great experience oh, overall. Oh, we know. I never finished telling you about how uh, how the sampling got crazy. All right, let's go back. 
Tell us about the high-pressured work environment. Yeah, so um, so like I was saying before, uh, there were certain choke points throughout the cruise where we where we had to work really really hard for a sort of twenty-four or forty-eight hour period, and um, and one of those was when we were doing this these twenty-four hour sampling periods of just taking a CTD every few hours, and what that meant was our laboratory was constantly running, and there were only two of us working in that laboratory. And so we had to pull some pretty long shift and basically just stay in there until until the work's done, which is really the attitude of these cruises. And it's right. and actually it's quite it's quite a cool thing to be involved with because you're all there working in unison and working hard for the for a common goal. And that's really, really nice. I was lucky. Everybody's kind of on the same page. Yeah, absolutely. And and I was lucky my um or the the sort of chief scientist in my lab Andreas, he he looked after me very well, so he made sure that whenever I was tired, I uh, I managed to get some sleep, and he he got very he got very little himself, um, but he oh, worked man. very very hard. And like overall, cruises like are just a really cool experience. It's a fun thing to be involved with, and you know you're going to make some contacts that are going to be valuable to you throughout your entire research career. All right, everyone, that is our show for today. I hope you enjoyed the Radiolab homages. I'd like to thank Radiolab for being in existence. Uh, anyway, we will see you next week. This is I, your humble host, Amir Fogel. And as always, don't forget to like and share The Imposture on Facebook, SoundCloud. And you can follow me on Twitter at AnotherFogel. That's F-O-G-E-L. And other than that, I will just say... You can always find us on iTunes. Subscribe to the Imposter Podcast to get all the new episodes and updates. Keyword, the Imposter Podcast. You just type that into the iTunes music store and bam, you will find us. All right, everyone, we will see you next week. Have a lovely weekend and stay frosty.